Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, originally a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems adopt technologies. My name is Tiasha Zaitz, and the mission of this podcast is to go beyond American centricity when reporting about healthcare and technology. This is why I'm really excited to share with you today's episode about health literacy improvement and women empowerment in Malaysia, Kenya and Tanzania. You're going to hear from two speakers, Shamala Hendrickson, the CEO of Hanai, which is a company providing health information to the underserved populations in Malaysia and Kenya. The other speaker is Maria Teresa Samson Kadushi, the CEO and co-founder of Mobile Afia. Mobile Afia provides healthcare information to people in Tanzania and is slowly scaling to other countries in Africa as well. Shamala, Maria, Teresa and I talked about the specifics of these three markets, the technology used to serve as wide population as possible, and we also addressed some of the challenges female founders face when designing and implementing solutions that are critical for society but less profitable from the investment point of view. If you will enjoy the discussion, do subscribe to the show and see other episodes as well. Now, to Maria Teresa and Shamala. Maria, Teresa and Shamala, you're both on a mission to increase health literacy. Maria, Teresa, you work primarily in Tanzania with your company Mobile Afia. And Shamala, your company Hanai is present in Malaysia and Kenya and is bringing health information to rural and marginalized settings. So for starters, can you both explain the scale of your operations and the type of health information you are providing? Shamala, you go first. Absolutely. Such a pleasure. With our work that's done through Hanai, we were looking to bring health education first as a first step measure to improve healthcare outcomes. And the health education that we bring out in Malaysia is focused, first of all, with the indigenous communities and towards East Malaysia, which really suffers from huge healthcare disparities from a West Malaysian developed setting. So our focus there is being completely indigenous communities to begin with, but the, the scale of it hit urban women as well because healthcare education is healthcare education. Anyone and everyone can benefit from it. The focus there has been maternal health and mental health since they tend to be in combination and we slipped in domestic violence as that's also the third part of a situation that often festers together. And because it's during COVID times, COVID information and a lot of socioeconomic information that women who are often vulnerable, marginalized, do not have access to or do not know that they need to reach. So that work is completely then ready to also be plugged into any other country since most of healthcare information is about, if I just shout it off the top, 60% is about global and 40% has to be localized. So that's where mm. we have the scalability across regions. In Kenya, the focus has been very much with teenage mothers 
and promoting second abstinence sexual education, again in the realm of maternal care, infant nutrition, but bringing in a huge element of young sex education. And we hope that work is also scalable across teenage moms, young moms across the continent. Maria, Teresa, what about you? How does your work uh, differ compared to what Shamala just mentioned that Hanai is doing? Yeah, first, great work that you're doing, Shamala and Hanai. At Mobile Afia, what we envision, our goal is very simple, is to ensure that any African with a mobile phone can access basic health information in their own languages. And we are a USSD application that works to provide and disseminate basic health information in local languages, starting with Swahili, which is the number one spoken language in Africa, spoken in Eastern Africa and some parts of Southern Africa. And then we are looking to also expand in other languages and to grow across markets. The information that we cover, we have five focus at the moment, including non-communicable diseases. So we provide information about different diseases, their symptoms, where to get care, and also post-care. And I mean, with the goal with preventive health in mind, either preventing diseases from um, spreading, giving people the tools, um, the preventive health tools, or early diagnosis, ensuring that people are aware of disease symptoms so that they can get care early and stand um, a higher chance of cure, cure and care. And our second focus is on women. So here we cover sexual reproductive health, focusing on menstrual health and maternal health. We have an offline algorithm where women can track their menstrual cycle, giving them the ability to make informed decisions um, around their sexuality, but also around reproductive health, ensuring that now a woman can have the information of when is her next period, but also her fertility window, when what is the prediction or the prediction of when she can possibly get pregnant or that when she is ovulating. And we find that it's very important to empower women with this kind of information so that they even stand a chance to make a decision that they are more informed or aware of. And also for women, it's maternal health, giving information about nutrition, but also different stages of pregnancy and making sure that this information apart from being given when women visit clinics and we go to clinics and visit hospitals but it's also widely shared and available anytime that is needed and our third focus is on first aid here we equip communities to be able to give emergency assistance and care in terms of emergency health and health related emergencies like accidents i mean car accidents what to do when someone is bleeding as we know that in most african countries and here in tanzania we don't have a functioning ambulance system so there's no emergency care system and when an accident accident happen then it's for the community and people the witnesses people who are around to help and take the person to 
uh, the nearest health healthcare facility. So giving them the tools of what to do when someone is bleeding, when someone has lost consciousness or from a drowning accident, how do you help them as you're trying to get them to healthcare? The fourth focus is adolescent health. And this, this was important. It was driven by our study and research that was really based on women and young girls. Adolescent health giving women and I mean, girls and also boys the information about adolescent health, changes of their bodies, about what is happening during their teen years, the, this tender age as they're growing up to become matured women and men. And the last, this is very new, we have just added this content this year, is domestic um, violence and abuse for women and children because sexual abuse for children has been something that is really growing and we're seeing it taking shape and it's not very much spoken about or there's not a lot of information about this to parents to communities, but also domestic violence and um, domestic abuse. And what should women do? What is domestic violence? Because there's also this gap of information of what it is. Women in some communities, they think verbal abuse or when a husband slaps the wife, It's just, if it's a wife, it's someone who's already at the home, then it's not really, it's not... Um, a problem or it's not even that it's something that they can act upon or they can report and things like this so that is the new information that we've added that is not as medical but it is very social and important to us so you know nutshell that is the information that we're covering at mobile app yeah. To really understand the importance of the work both of you are doing, I think it's important to outline how the society works, what's the healthcare like, and how does the tradition that's very strong still in terms of educating people um, in these communities, how do these things connect to each other or influence each other? Maybe Shamala, you can start. Sure. So I can speak first of all to the Malaysian context, which thankfully enjoys pretty okay healthcare distribution. Maternal mortality rates, when you look at it, it says that it's it's low, it's good, it's a good indicator. But then when you take a look at what the indigenous community goes through, you start to see a completely different picture. A woman who starts suffering from preeclampsia will need up to sometimes six hours to reach her closest hospital. We're looking at geographical uh, barriers for people reaching their closest hospitals and things like ambulance services take again could take up to six hours to reach so someone in an emergency will end up dying can end up dying and a woman sitting a woman bleeding post post hemorrhaging uh, postpartum can still die up to this day because it takes too long for her to walk back again to the hospital to get care. So I'm giving you a very uh, watered down, very basic example of what's going to happen. That's one aspect of it. The fact that the healthcare, healthcare infrastructure in itself is not serving the communities enough. It's not doing a good enough job. That's one aspect of it. The second aspect of it, we are also talking about communities that are entrenched with their beliefs, their community sense, where they do really take care of one another. And I find sometimes like that ends up protecting the women and protecting children and protecting people to such a phenomenal extent 
even more than allopathic care, even more than an actual official healthcare system. The only methodology is to work hand in hand. Do not discount one and take the other. You need to work hand in hand. You need to work together. And that's also when healthcare professionals come into these areas, they need to absolutely have the attitude that this is a community that has known what to do for a long time. How do I work alongside them? Not override it with my five or six years of medical training and hence I now know better. There's always that problem. Women, children, communities end up not going towards the official healthcare providers because they feel, oh, I've been eating this particular type of herb and now I'm going to be told that's not a good thing. So I don't want to go there. We've been doing this in my family for generations. So to give you that picture, we have both arms of it. We have a healthcare infrastructure and we have Indigenous communities with their wealth of knowledge. And the issue very often happens when one looks at the other and says, you are not right. And this one looks at the other and says, you are not right. And that's also where we and Hanai try to find a common ground. We try to bring, we use a pictogram of a slightly older lady from the community telling the stories, telling the issues, but always saying, okay, but do go and seek your doctor's help. And we do have a huge database of directories of where the doctors are, where your closest healthcare providers are, so that people will know very quickly where to go when they do need to seek help. That's sort of the, it's a seesaw very constantly. You have healthcare infrastructure that, that is very aspirational from a governmental perspective on what they should do, because they need to seek also the numbers showing that they're doing a good job. And then the other typical fact is that infrastructure actually does not reach sometimes beyond an urban setting. The moment you're trying to go into rural, that infrastructure doesn't, equipment is not there. Lack of hospital beds, lack of operation equipment. Like you get women needing to do cesarean sections with a 25-year-old who's graduated medical school with no equipment. That's also reality. I'm not just giving you scary stories. I'm telling you stories that actually happen on the ground. Like. How does a 25-year-old, granted has had five years on that school, but how is he or she to perform a cesarean with barren equipment in an unsterile environment? And we then question why women are dying in childbirth. Yeah, so I'm painting you a rather scary picture. That's the reality. And that's why I feel we justify our work. We need to do it. We need to tell women, like, if you start having swollen feet, you're dizzy, all the symptoms, which you say to someone else before I got pregnant, I didn't know that a combination of these things meant my life was in danger. Yeah. Women need to know that. Mm -hmm. The lack of infrastructure and clinicians is very high in, in the African setting. So I'm very cu curious to see, Maria Teresa, what's your side of the insight when it comes to the African population? Nurses have a very important role uh, in general in the communities. However, the tradition here is not just about what herbs have been known to be helpful, but also about the misconceptions of what happens with the human body when, for example, the, a woman has a, her period. And we talked about this uh, in 2009. And for me, it was shocking to hear how in some villages, women would even be removed from the community for a certain period of time when they had their period, because there was an, the perception that their body is cleansing or that evil spirits are coming out of her. Uh, I, I imagine it's, how do you change that thinking? Yeah, the misconceptions. So 
I mean, my, I, I have a personal rule. I think the only way to counter misinformation is through provision of correct information. The misinformation spread very widely when there is, yes, misinformation that comes from not knowing because people have to find a way of making sense of things. For men who, before we had the biological understanding of what menstruation is and before education in a continent that doesn't have a very long history of formal education. People had to make sense of it somehow. They said men didn't have, were not having periods. Women have periods. And also in, in times that women were subjected to a lot of, say, negative taboos and cultures, not only menstruation, there were a lot of things even before that. I remember that in some part of history, not only in Africa, but I also think it was the same in, in Greece and some parts of Asia that twins were a curse. Somehow just someone thought, if you have more than one child, this is a very bad sign and we have to kill the children. And children were killed just because they really thought that it was a bad thing. And in, in some, because they couldn't make any, there wasn't any better reasoning of how could a woman have more than one child. And in this same sense with things like menstruation, seeing a woman bleeding, bleeding in a normal sense, when you bleed, something is wrong. It's not normal to bleed in parts of your body and for a woman even though this is a normal thing it's a biological it's a natural thing for men or for communities they had to make sense of it so they decided uh, we think this is evil this is woman cleansing the evil spirit and however so they have to be away from the children they have to be away from the husband or the partner or however and things like this. So I think the only way as communities, and especially in Africa, where I think it's very important, I mean, it's a matter of life and death in many cases, that the misinformation is countered by the correct and right information. And you do this by making the correct and right information accessible, which is what we are doing. We're trying to do with Mobile Afia that it has to be normal. We have to ensure that men as well as women at any time can access information about menstruation, can read, can check what menstruation is. When someone tells you that menstruation is cleansing of, I don't know, dirt or evil spirit of a woman, you can confidently say, no, it's not. This is what menstruation is, and I have a reference here. But until we get to that point, I don't think it will be easy to drive misinformation and all these taboos that have been there for hundreds of years. The same for healthcare. For healthcare services, already we are we bear the largest burden of diseases in the world, even though we don't bear the largest population in the world. But the burden of diseases and the burden of death from diseases, from the WHO statistics in 2020, 70% of all deaths that happened in Africa were from diseases and majority of those were preventable diseases. In a continent where you have a rate of one doctor per 3,000 patients, when you compare that with Germany, it's one doctor per 300. It's 10 times the burden of a doctor or healthcare provider 
within the continent is 10 times of that from the West. Of course, the healthcare system also is overwhelmed. Doctors, nurses within facilities are overwhelmed. They don't, when you have hundreds, a hundred people, our colleagues here who also work in um, public hospitals say that you might have to see more than 50 people in a day. You don't really have time to sit down with the patient and start explaining about their condition and really informing them of what it is because you really have to see them, take the history, then direct them to the lab, take the next person. You don't have that time. So there's a gap of also quality of healthcare. But that we cannot even talk about quality of healthcare because we, we're still talking about accessibility of healthcare. There's not enough health professionals. There are not enough medical facilities. We have shortage of medicine. There's so many issues around the healthcare system. But we can do much better to decrease or, or to sort of improve that situation by making sure that at least we invest in preventive health and we invest in health education, either in maternal health for young women. It's even worse what Shamala was saying, having a young woman in a rural health facility having to do CS without electricity or a doctor really working without having an ultrasound machine, without, it's an emergency, they have to do it anyway, but they don't have the tools there they don't exist so if there is a way that we can actually for example give more information to women especially young women about going to the clinics even if it has to be that they go far away but they know how important it is that they do and to decrease the uh, load of demand on health care by ensuring that preventive health is practiced in a continent and in countries that systems are already overwhelmed. I think that will really um, positively impact communities. Which brings us to how the information really reaches the population. Both of you are working with mobile applications with a slightly different uh, technology, but just before we get to that, I want to read some statistics. So according to a 2019 survey conducted by the Pew Research Center, to assess the availability and accessibility of mobile phones in 11 different emerging market economies, The majority of people in these countries have access to mobile phones and more than 53% of them have access to a smartphone. And this survey was conducted in countries um, like Mexico, Venezuela, Colombia, South Africa, Kenya, India, Vietnam, and the Philippines. And I always like to, when I look at statistics, I always like to look at them from both sides. Okay, so 53% of people have access to smartphones. So that means that 50% of people don't have access. So it's that's a huge number. And then the The question also becomes, who is the population that has the access to technology? So I wonder, from your experience on the ground, what is the accessibility of technology, especially for women who are the primary caregivers um, in the family and also in the West? They're the ones that are making healthcare decisions. So who wants to go first? I just want to very briefly contribute to this because I hear this a lot, especially when people are talking about digital technologies, when people are talking about high tech and the, uh, the use and implementation of high tech, even in the developing world, making a case of people who have access. 
I heard that you said this was a global study and this is data from everywhere. And the countries that you have mentioned, the two countries, South Africa and Kenya, are actually the countries with one of the highest smartphone penetration in the whole continent among 54 countries that are in the continent of Africa. So there is also that. And when we talk about accessibility, it's not just having a smartphone is having a smartphone. It's really not accessibility to technology and to internet because there's a huge issue of affordability. Many people, I think you can also talk about this, Shamala, even in Kenya, where internet packages, uh, we know that in Europe, internet is highly subsidized. I was reading a report of the efforts of the EU to make sure that even now in rural areas and for people with low income that they are they get internet access at a low rate, but it's very it's subsidized to make it affordable. Within the continent in Africa, internet is very expensive. It is even expensive for me having to buy weekly or monthly packages to stay online. So there's affordability, but also there is language barrier. Majority of African countries, apart from the Francophone countries and the English-speaking countries, but most of these countries speak their own local languages and they don't have that good command of English. When content on the internet, uh, health-related content and more also not health-related content is majorly in English. So even when they can go online, it's not like they can really learn and get information unless that language barrier is also considered. I know that this is also the same issue in Kenya, that there are demographics, the young people and staff who can speak very good English, but the majority of people who do not live in big cities and do not have university education struggle with good command of English. So you have to look at it at both angles, but I think this is something that Shamala can really dive in and talk about it's great no great points you brought up there and this is something that I just learned last week so it's a continuing learning journey right every single day somebody tells you something you go like god I should have done it differently and this is something that I learned last week because I brought up the whole point on we also localize languages um, heavily because we believe that and I would like to just make a point of my own experience English is the language that I'm most comfortable in and when I was pregnant, I was living in a French-speaking country. And I thought, no, I want to read my pregnancy-related information in English. And all that info was very specific to the UK and the US. And this is me, a reasonably educated woman with reasonable means, sitting in developed Europe, wondering why is this information in English not relevant to me? It's not the same medical checkouts. It's not the same facilities that are available. This is what's available in the UK and the US. And it hit me even then how the disparity starts from there. So this is me still able to speak all these languages and able to do all of this already having an issue. Then there's no way this is going to support anyone else who needs it. That's one part for the language. And a point to it, Teresa, that was going to say, I learned last week in parts of Kenya, if someone is literate, they can read, they read English. But when you, so you make video content and audio content, then it needs to be in Kishwahili. But when it's a readable content, if they can read at all, 
then they are able to read English. So they're not going to read anything else. This was something that struck me like, oh, yeah, I never thought about that because I would have automatically translated everything and got it done. But every step of the way, being extremely local, asking your benefactor, benefactors, what do they, beneficiaries, what they need, what are they able to do? Because we were, we were deploying surveys and I, was, I had asked the question, should we have the questionnaire? translated and that's when it's it the person talking about the questionnaire will talk in kikuyu in whatever is necessary but the person if they can read the questionnaire they will read it in english so that's the first big barrier that we already begin to have and in terms of internet penetration and mobile phone penetration yeah i have the, the so far the privilege of working in those countries with extremely high mobile phone penetration to begin with. I think Kenya is 89% mobile phone penetration. So it tipples the African data altogether because it has 80% someone else has 2%. You averaged out and got somewhere at 54. So it doesn't tell the story. And Malaysia, where I operate some of the business from is some ridiculous figure, like 150% internet mobile phone penetration because people have two phones. But again, you hit an urban area because that's where the telco tower is and you still can have that phone and have it work for you. But let's move a kilometer, two kilometers, three kilometers and talk about people that we want to So What's happening there then? And these phones are absurdly priced and every single time there's a new model to it, but it's serving a very small bunch of the population of the world. And I, this is where the work that we do, and I'm sure it's the same for you, Theresa. We question also the network providers. Where are you building your towers? This is quintessential to the development of a community altogether, connectivity, be it for healthcare, agriculture. It's across board education. We cannot. There was a story um, recently of a Malaysian girl from one of the indigenous communities. She sat high up on a tree to finish her exam. She sat, climbed up a tree, sat up there with her notebook to finish, complete her exams. That's the extent that people are going to. Okay. And it's year 2021. Why are we still only operating in what, who can afford to pay for what world? It's insane to think of that. But to answer the question, yes, we did in Malaysia launch on a, our, an app, complete app that is used on a smartphone basis. And we have a system to it. There are other apps that do that up to the point that the internet connection of it, uh, allows for it. There is feedback into the app. After that point, the app co operates completely offline. Mm -hmm. So you're still able to read and when you come back to connectivity, literacy rates are pretty high. So that's okay. They're able to read and interact. And after that point, we're completely dependent on community champions. So each part of the information is printable or seeable as a PDF. And every time community champions go in, they're able to show it then for communities that then have mobile phones. I am, however, really changing my own tune to it. I was such a big believer that, no, I will only go with this. I'm going to push that smartphones will reach every single hand. And I'm failing. It will at some point. Of course. It will at some point, but and until that point, I have to keep fighting. I have to keep working with ministers of telco for countries and keep pushing the Vodafones and Orange of the world and keep getting there and then still serve our communities using USSD SMS systems mm -hmm. where it's required. Like 
the technology needs to fulfill the need of the person at the end of it who receives it. If mm-hmm. I create something that's available, sorry? Yeah, no, I just want oh, Very often when it's the ours, we built it on Android just to finish that point. But every time an investor or someone who's interested looks at it and goes like, oh, but it's not available on the iPhone. Go like, yeah, because the app is not created for you <laughs> sitting in your fancy office. The app is created for a woman who's probably a farmer who's got a very simplistic, cheaper phone that she can get for really very quickly and handily. Yeah, so it's not created on the iPhone. It's not created for you. It's created for someone else. Yeah. Yeah. In, in, sorry, sorry to just add on a little bit of what you say, but in most of the countries, iPhone users are not even 4, 5% of the whole uh, population of smartphone users. So when you're creating, unless you just want to create a version for your investors and other people to see, it's really not serving the purpose. But what, Shamala, you have said about creating applications, even when they're smart apps, but that are friendly with the network coverage and the fact that they can work offline, I think having being this mindful and um, knowing that for the majority part, maybe this person might not be able to really access and be online. So creating an application that also has an offline mode that can operate as well as or well enough to some extent as if they were online is something that you can only do after you have been on ground, after you've done enough studies to really understand the local context. And I really like that. I, I was in a community and there was a telco tower right beside. And so they were telling me, no, we need to go up by boat up to a certain point in the river to get connectivity. So what about this tower right here? And they went, it's for decoration. <laughs> <laughs> but this is the reality of it. And the way the person said it was so flippant. Oh, it's just there as a decorative item. Yeah, it's just how it is. Maria, Teresa, you, we mentioned that the penetration of uh, mobile phones is quite high. However, there is a distinction between smartphones and regular phones. And that's where the older technology, the USSD protocol, which you are still heavily using, comes in. So maybe a word or two about that and, and how it works. And one interesting fact that I still remember from our interview in 2019 was when you were explaining to me that if women searched for health information, their fear of privacy was that their husbands or their family would not see that they're searching for something because it could be um, misinterpreted. So just like a brief overview of, of that. Yes. So just to quickly give you a picture of the numbers in a continent with over 1 billion people in Africa, 600 million people at the moment do not have reliable internet accessibility. So we're talking about nearly more than 50% of the uh, population. But 900 million people have mobile phones out of over a billion people so or have mobile phone subscription. This could be that they have had a phone at some point, they have a SIM card and they share a phone with a brother or a friend, so they have it now and then, but most of them have phones. Mobile phones is the number one item in households in sub-Saharan Africa. 
Yeah, it has surpassed radio. So in each household, in, on average, every household has a mobile phone over radio, over a bicycle, over a hole and everything else. So this could is a tool. It's, it's a tool that can be used knowing that with mobile phones, regardless of whether they're feature phones or smartphones, they can be used as a tool of education They can be used as a tool of information spreading. Imagine if countries had, especially developing countries like Tanzania and Kenya, had a system already in place, um, an information spreading system, some countrywide mobile affair version where they people can receive urgent or emergency information about pandemic or disasters that at any time when that happens, they can be informed and that progress can be tracked and things like this. For corona, for COVID-19, this could have made a huge difference. So rethinking in the past 20 years, we've been using phones for communication and only communicating. And then there was social media, but rethinking how we're using mobile technology because it can be used furthermore as a tool and we know that even for feature phones which are majorly used within the continent they can also be used and for USS the protocol that we're using the technology is very old it's I think if you guys remember back in Europe I think many years ago when you were checking your phone balance or by dialing a number, you dial star 100 or something and get a response. That is a USSD protocol. And basically, it sends command and return um, a response that it fetches from a server or a computer sitting somewhere. And from this, it can be a two-way communication where someone can continuously do that within one session. So I can dial a number. How mobile app works is you dial a number, and it sends a command and fetches a menu. So it happens in a second, just right after you, you press um, call, then it returns um, a menu. Those menu are numbered, so the topics that you can get information on are numbered, and you choose a number from that, and then it sends back the information through SMS. It's very low-tech. The tech side of it is uh, quite low-tech, uh, quite old school. The requirements are very low, but it's technology that has is currently used by more than um, 250 million Africans from mobile wa- wallets. So M-Pesa, mobile banking is very popular and it's one of the success stories of fintech in in Africa, something that has been achieved that has not worked anywhere else in the world. This means the learning curve for this kind of technology is very low because majority of the people know how to use M-Pesa or mobile wallet, which is the same protocol. And when it comes to privacy, when we were doing research, and I I remember us talking about this in 2019, I was in um, Europe for a few months, several times, and I could hear the discussions of privacy here and what people are concerned with. They're concerned about companies misusing their data. They're they're concerned about digital ethics, about not knowing where the information is going. And even for me, as someone in tech, it was very strange learning about the law. GD, it's called GDPR. Mm-hmm. GDPR. Yeah. Yeah. Learning, about, 
learning about that and why that was important. And I was talking with people from the tech community who were very passionate and who were really very invested in it. And I was thinking, wow, this is very, I've never worried about this ever in my life. I understand that this is, I mean, it's a concern where my data, how my data could be used, but I live in a country where it's, there are no regulations. It's a very norm that your data, your information can be used anywhere. You could find your uh, public information, a form that you've filled, discarded somewhere after a few years and things like this, because it's not really a big deal. But I thought of privacy from our perspective when we did research what we defined as privacy is because phones as many items in African communities, which is more very communal and not as individualistic, they share so many things. And our communities are patriarchal. Yes, we're try- trying to break these structures, but they're still very heavily there. So for many women and even young people, not only women, youth, um, teens, they were worried, what if I'm looking for information about sex education. My parents could find out that I am trying to learn about sex education, which might mean that I'm trying to have sex and having sex before marriage here is a sin. So that could get me in very big trouble. If I'm looking for information about STDs, for example, sexually transmitted disease, this might mean that I've had sex. That's why I'm worried. And what if they find this information on my phone? These were privacy or sort of privacy concerns for people who we interviewed. No one had asked us, not even one person, and we talked with more than 500 people about what are you going to do with my phone number, with this information that you're you're keeping about me? No one was concerned about that at all. They were concerned about what if my husband sees that I am learning about family planning, he might think that I don't want to have children with him and I'm not um, in liberty to choose whether to have children or not because I am his wife and things like that. So privacy in our context meant something entirely different. And until now, we do a lot of feedback sessions. We go back, we call our users. We have not had a question of what are you going to do with our data? But with privacy also, I know from my tech background is that the first rule of um, personal data security and privacy is that you do not collect any information that you don't need because you have to keep it secured, you have to maintain it, and all these things that cost money, which many companies fail to do. So for us, we don't collect any personal information. We don't need it. We don't need someone's name. We don't need to know who this user is. We don't need to know whether they're married or not. We need to know where they, their location, where they are, and we need their phone number, which our system gets anyway. That is the only thing that we need, and that's the only thing that we keep. Everything else is not kept, and we do not store it. We talked before about the information that you are providing so everything around maternal health, women's health, domestic violence, which is a topic that we can address a little bit later. But one thing that I do wonder is to which extent did COVID shift your focus of the information that you're providing? I'm sure that you saw your role as very important in this pandemic. So maybe Shamala, you can start this time. 
Completely. But before I answer that question, I wanted to bring something up. I'm a big believer that technology does not need to be fancy and sophisticated just because it gets some investors' eyes or you treat somebody else. It's somebody's king to put all the buzzwords together. So I love the fact that, Teresa, as a techie, you are holding strong the simplest technology to do it forward. And I have a point to raise. It's, it's not controversial. When WH, when COVID hit the world and WHO put together a team and put a lot of money into creating a COVID-19 app. So they, of course, built it on the latest sophisticated technology that's possible that is then accessible to those of us who've got smartphones. There is a complete other part of the world that would have really required a USSD system, SMS-based information to come out to them. But why didn't we, the rest of the world, put that together? And I question that very often. When a pandemic hits the world, the parts of the world that require that information the most or the simplest of things, like at that time, it, at first it was washing your hands and wearing a mask. That information could have been very simplistically sent out to the millions of phone subscribers through their network providers. But even an organization that's supposed to be respectable, like the WHO, did not do that. And that just sets the scene of how the world thinks and does its work and which is why people like Maria Theresa or what Hanai does, it's important because you're trying to think of those vulnerable populations or those marginalized. And hence, sometimes the easiest technology suffices. And the question on what has happened with the pandemic, of course, we had to, we did a fair bit of work of bringing COVID-19 related information in very localized languages so that it would really hit be it a woman who doesn't speak like Malay, which is the main language spoken in Malaysia or English, and spoke only her indigenous language. So we put a lot of effort into getting COVID-19 info out in extremely down to the last, even if two people spoke it, we tried to go down for that mm -hmm. level to broaden the platform and get that down on just trying to do it that way. That's where the COVID-19 work fit in. And right now, of course, with the vaccinations coming through, there's a lot of questioning on safety during pregnancy and breastfeeding. And we hope to be able to very quickly gear towards that. And the pandemic on the negative side has made it impossible for us to hit the ground and conduct surveys and look at feedback loops. So that's the negative side of it. In At least on the Malaysian side, it's a serious lockdown that has been difficult. Maria Teresa, so how did you manage the information flow? Because the information about COVID and what the right way of, of doing things and living, they changed so much that a lot of people just lost faith in WHO, in the government. Yeah, so how did you cope with that? Yeah, last year we had COVID-19 content. Of course, the system here in Tanzania is that Every information that is disseminated or distributed to public, I think it's also the same in Kenya, it has to be approved by the Ministry of Health. So they, they, they have to read through and they will advise and yeah, before you share with the public. Um, and for us, we already operate in Swahili. So it's already all that we're doing, our whole platform um, is in Swahili language. And it also it is in a very easy to understand communicative language that even a person who is not educated or highly educated can understand. 
And this is also very important. This took us so long to, to bring about. This was the, it was the longest part of our development to create content because it was quite hard and medical topics, uh, health topics are not very easy. Terminologies on diseases and things are very technical. So to simplify this, but also to put it in Swahili, because a lot of medical content is not in Swahili. When Corona hit, we had to create some words for things that didn't have Swahili words. Like sanitizer did not uh, exist in the Swahili dictionary. There was no wet word for what sanitizer is in Swahili. So that had to be um, created and things like that. So yes, we had content, but then over, I mean, this year, the government has taken over educating the public about COVID-19. It's a bit controversial here in Tanzania how things are going, but now it's up to Ministry of Health to handle all the education programs. And Why is it controversial? Because there are different, there are different approaches on how the ministry and how the minister and how the government is handling it. There are people who agree and the people disagree the use of local medicine they don't call them local they call them natural home remedies and the emphasis on using that by the ministry of health has been a bit controversial because uh, many people are questioning that it has to be scientific it has to be medical it has to be tested and ministry of health cannot support something that is not purely medical and things like this. So in that essence, it is controversial, but also the lack of data because we are not, the country is not publishing any COVID-19 data, but also we are, I think the only country in East Africa that doesn't have any measures. So it's a, it's a very famous holiday spots right now in Tanzania, and it has been since December, which also lead to cases, I think, increasing and because we were open borders and being one of the largest tourist countries in the continent, there was a lot of, yeah, a lot of people and tourists coming. So the whole, the way that the, the government is handling the disease. I'm not in liberty to say whether it's wrong or right. I have to really be careful with my words here, but it's controversial. That's what I would say. That You both are working in this field for a very long time by now. So just as a last question, knowing how economic forces work, knowing how VCs think, what are your realistic expectations in the next, let's say, five to ten years in terms of how the public health and health literacy could improve? And maybe you can also add a little bit information there about how it is for you to, as women, to um, deal with business and fundraising. Again, I just re- remembered our discussion in 2019, Maria Teresa, when you were explaining to me that because the role of a woman in Africa is still very traditional, it really is completely different in terms of hardship compared to the West. Shamala, maybe you want to start. I think in terms of where, and very similarly, probably to where Teresa was going to end with that comment, was that I think we are looking to empower every woman to be able to decide her own healthcare outcome. 
at the end of it. So that's the ultimate goal that Hannah is hoping to reach. Everything that we do, every decision that we make is so that healthcare outcomes should not be uttered and dictated to you. You should be able to dictate your own healthcare outcome. So be it being empowered with health education, being enabled with tools at your fingertips with your phone to reach that healthcare information that you need, having your own digital identity so that you can take care of your privacy of what you are looking for online. Who are you chatting with about what? That is all part of the this toolbox of what Hanai is trying to make sure that we can do. That when we have touched a community and we leave, you are now able to manage your own healthcare outcomes. So that's a goal of where we are going, if that answers your question. That's the vision that we're working towards in terms of answering that question. Should I let Teresa answer that question first so that I can go back to the woman um, one next? Barriers to success, hopefully, with some optimistic outlook. Okay. Yes. So big goal, the bigger picture, what we are looking to achieve, and this is also our vision, is giving access, inclusive access of health information to all. We are imagining a continent and hopefully also other developing countries where any person with a mobile phone or even without can access health information. We're starting with mobile phone technology, but we believe that the focus for many years in global health has been curative care. And I think also Shamala would agree with me on this. Curative health, meaning healthcare and everything that happens after someone is already within a either health condition or disease when they need that care, meaning investing in hospitals, investing in hospital systems and health facility systems, investing in medication and stuff. But we need to take a step back and look at it also from a different angle because even for healthcare professionals, especially medical doctors, I also talked about preventive health. It's one of, it's taught with a lot of emphasis, the same as curative health but or curative care but the more importance is given on that so it's about time to to look at how preventive health can complement curative and how we can really make progress if we also invest in health literacy in health education and also in community health and personally I am very optimistic. I'm very optimistic that we will reach that point that um, we'll get to, I mean, a point that this will not be a new thing or a new innovation. It will be a normal thing and something that makes sense that if we want to create um, a healthier world, a better world, we need to tell people how to do it. And we need to make that accessible. For me, it's logic, and I hope that others also get to see that in every aspect, whether it's health, but also social matters when it comes to adolescent education, which is something very close to my heart because it's something that I really searched and looked for when I was young. There was nowhere I could get any information about anything. Apart from the little that I learned in primary school, I was very 
unfortunate that maybe not unfortunate it was a very good thing that I started school at a very young age so at the time that we were told about reproduction and reproductive health and the basic understanding as part of the curriculum in in primary school I was eight years old and it was the same as I was learning about everything else because it didn't really apply to me I was not yet at that age where I could contextualize that as part of my own experience so when that started happening to me later on as I was already in secondary school, I wanted to know more. I wanted to know more about what is happening in my body. I wanted to know more about menstrual health. I wanted to know more about sexual education. And there was nowhere I could get that information. And I hope that we can make it different for the coming generation because we have everything, the tools, the technology, what it takes to yeah, make this information accessible. Mm-hmm. Are you anticipating a lot of barriers to success in getting to the goals? Every day there's a challenge that you cross that hurdle and you move forward and you, the team does a round of applause saying, thank God we made that challenge. Because I don't think, you, you asked a question earlier about being a woman and doing all that in that setting. It goes so far beyond that because we're also dealing with governments and health ministries and getting approval on content, which somebody decides that I'm not going to read this today. I'm going to read it in six weeks. And then and you wonder whose chair you're supposed to set a fire underneath so that they will read that quickly and just get on with it. And then it's six <laughs> months later and it's not read yet. <laughs> exactly. And then you've got everyone else who's pressuring you that where's your Arab boys? They're not out. And you're just waiting for this one person who's so I think those are the barriers that happens. It's because the, the we're not talking about healthcare infrastructure, we're talking about the infrastructure and enabling people is not there. So these things can take as long as single individuals feel they should take. These things these things can take so long as individual members of parliament of areas can decide that it's not necessary that my women here are empowered or enabled. They're actually doing really well. We don't need a healthcare app like yours to come in. It can be as as a bar- another barrier would be that somebody decides that actually I need $200 in order to read this. So every single day, there is a different sort of barrier that comes your way that I never in my life thought that this no university education teaches you how do I respond to this email where somebody says I need $200? There is nothing in you that you're able to pull that from. You look at the email and you go, I'm supposed to do here. <laughs> like I'm trying to save lives, but now I have to give $200 to do that. So those are the barriers. I'm just giving you a little bit of a sample <laughs> of where that is. It goes on and on. And as a woman, I think I've had the privilege since I've built my career on a different continent, which female and male uh, disparities exist, but not to the extent that it exists maybe in parts of the developing world. But I, and primarily, I would bring it up that I, when I seek investors or getting space to talk to, I'm also a woman of color. And there becomes, there my challenge of being a woman of color definitely stands out more than a challenge of being just a woman. That in alone is enough to put me away. But yeah, in an audience that is always, especially in a European setting and even to a certain extent American setting, where it can at times be that I'm the only person of color in that room. 
And my voice, when I'm speaking about technology, is much quieter then because it's not quite as respected as every other voice in that room. That is among the bigger challenges because of the fact of the way I look and the way I sound. And the people that I choose to serve are then also not the biggest economies in terms of making money. Why should someone invest in a woman of color who's just only almost interested in serving women of color who don't actually have much more money? So that is a very controversial statement, but I'll put it out there because that is a daily part of my reality. Maria Teresa, can you add your side of the story as well? Yeah, and I'm very glad. I mean, what Shamala you have said, that is the reality. I am so first I'll go back to barriers. Of course, there will be barriers. There will be I'm expecting new kind of barriers because dealing with government bodies is a barrier that will always for me, I've already marked it as we will be there. We have to just learn and manage how to go around and work with it. Because as a startup and also as an innovation and health IT entity, the way the, the infrastructure, the structures work in Tanzania doesn't match what we're doing. The speed, the lack of professionalism, the bureaucracy, it just doesn't make any sense. What Shamala was talking about, someone sitting with your document for months, just deciding, I'm not going to do this today. I would rather just check my Facebook Messenger and then go to lunch. And then it's 3 p.m. and I go chat with a friend on the next desk and I leave the office. And I'm going to do that for, let's see, six months. And every time you call, you're told it's not ready. It's three pages how long does it take to read three pages and approve? So these are things that are, I think will all, will be there until we we have a voice enough. And I think we'll gain that voice and that power to drive change once we are more impactful. I don't see any other way around. We need to earn that seat where we can really make noise and our noise can, they can take, yeah, they can listen to what we're saying, but as still small entities, especially led by women, there's already a huge here. You're told that if you want something to move, just put a man on the front. They'll be respected more. They're going to um, make this a little faster. It's not going to be looking down on you because first you get to a government official, they look down on you and they think oh, it's a woman. What is she going to do? And that's uh, we put a man on the front. And I have said no to that. I said, I'm not going to do it. I am going, we're going to go as women because we're team founders, all founders are women, and we're going to go as women. And we're going to get it no matter how long it will take, but we are not going to go down to not having our own identity and our name up on the front. Apart from that, the barriers, other barriers, new markets, we want to expand to new markets and that will come with its own level of challenges that we're looking forward to learning about them and to, yeah, get through. But the second point of funding and the support I also raised, I mean, we met Yasa in one of the conferences and that was one of our networking activities. 
trying to raise funds and trying to get enough support. And what you're saying about really struggling to be taken serious. And we meet other entrepreneurs as the European-based entrepreneurs who are doing things that are, what's the right word to say, that are really not meaningful. Yeah, they are, yes, for maybe convenience and making things more fun and more nice. And someone tells you, my goal is 5 million euros in funding. I already have 2.1 and I want to create this recreational app for old people, uh, the older generation to chat and um, share recipes. And I'm still going around trying to raise more funds and I'm thinking 2.1, wow. Wow, that's that I cannot even imagine thinking about 2.1 million to create an application for people to share recipes, but that's good for you. And you feel that port and maybe as I say, it's different markets thinking that, okay, you're working and serving a market that is not really a largest economy, things that we hear only problems from, and it's not as um, important or significant. But there has been a lot of, you feel that, yeah, you don't get the same kind of seriousness, but also people, the people who make these decisions do not take you serious. I actually stopped applying for competitions and stuff because... I realized that this is just too much torture. Exhausting. It takes so much time to apply for these things. Yes, and you find that it's a project to make um, health more uh, tech-based and you apply as a health startup that is already working. You have the numbers, you have the data, you have everything that it takes. And a group of students from not Africa, a European country, in this case, I would not mention the country, university student get the prize. They have not even been, they have an idea. It's not something that has been tested. It doesn't work. It's not there. They're not, they, they don't have time, enough time to do it because they're still students and stuff. And you wonder, what is this? What are these things created for? Who are these things are created for? This funding and this money is really not targeting people who are working on the ground. Maybe there's this fancy idea of, allowing people from the West to go and make an impact, but it's not real. It, it doesn't really serve the purpose and create. So yeah, I think on my end, those I would say are things I identify, but I think it's also very different being a young person in tech because there's a, another layer of being inexperienced and maybe not being taken serious because they're not sure if you really want to work on that or you're trying it or you're doing it because you can do it you have the the tech background but there's also being an african or being someone of color uh, and not being european and then there's being a woman and i always say every layer of that comes with its own challenges and putting all of that together is just another level of yeah challenging situation that you just have to be really persistent and resilient to be able to continue and make it through. Maybe just one more thing before we wrap up, and that is, so given everything that both of you mentioned in terms of investments, rewards, grants, where did you find your success or what's the profile of the people, of investors that have decided to back you up? What can others learn? From them, I'll answer first since I unmuted first. Look for look at the investment portfolio of people. If they've invested in other impact projects, but they're not looking, they're looking at a 
triple bottom line where they're looking at people, planet, and profit. Look at the investment portfolio. If they're already open to that means they would target and qualify a project. And also look that if they are investing in cars where doors open automatically, that's not your investor. That's just don't go near them. Don't waste your time. Do not go anywhere near them because that's not the type of person who's going to be interested in you at all. If it's someone who's looking at possibly agricultural information techniques for farmers in sub-Saharan Africa, yes, they would have an interest. So look at the investment portfolio. Look at what are they looking for. If they go for a triple bottom line, that's definitely somebody you can look at. Business angels who've got smaller pockets of money who are willing to put that aside for a small project and wait for their returns. These are investors you can look for. And that and that's usually more helpful than looking for the money. Yeah, so be wise. And, and this is something that I've learned completely from experience from what um, Teresa said earlier, like applying for things and then being told, you're not tech enough. You're not sophisticated enough in your technology and having others win it when they have not even tried and tested it. My simplistic tech has reached people. It is improving the lives of people. Like we have women who have stopped prostituting themselves and instead are taking better care of their health. Like we have actual impact. But yeah, so look at the invest. My advice, look at the investment portfolio Look for business angels and with a little bit of age and a little bit of maturity, be much wiser about putting the effort into applications because it takes so much time, so much effort. And sometimes people put you through the road and then you realize that was just not worth it. Something I should have never. Yeah, yeah. Very wise, Shamala. I would also agree. First, I agree with everything that Shamala has said. But what has been successful for us it were women. Women have been a success story for our work from the beginning, from where I started, the first volunteers and supporters and people that I did research with that I didn't have to pay. And I didn't have the resources and they were not asked, they were willing to work voluntarily with women. My co-founders, the first person who came in and supported and wanted to be part and committed her time and skills, Dr. Hilda is a woman. Our two investors are both women and they're both business angels. So they, they are not um, people who invest uh, in big portfolios. They have also invested before in small projects in South America and another one in Southern Asia. And so what everything I've said, Shamala, is what has worked for me. And it's something that I would advise for other women. I think applying with VCs and uh, these competitions and grants just does not work because I have done so many applications and I know what ended up working for us was another woman believing in what we're doing and continuing that our story of that women really do support women. I think the biggest challenge is we don't have many women funds and fundings and VCs that are led and also operated by women. And that's where the I think the disconnects happen. But I believe if there were as many, then they would be supporting more female-led businesses. 
I was um, looking at yesterday in one of the events um, that I was invited, they were talking about data in Europe of women who get funding. And it was only 19% of all the VCs funds and all the investment that is made every year that goes to women. And this is, we're talking about in developed, in the most developed um, world that, that there is. So there is a huge disconnect. And I would just say, because these VCs, when you look at also the uh, the profiles of these VCs, most of them are men and are dominated by men. And of course, they're going to invest more on things that are um, either run by men, which with my experience, you can correct me if I'm wrong, they are mostly not targeting the low end and they're not targeting really um, people that I need. They're more commercial, they're more yeah, profit-oriented. And also with the VCs, what we saw for most is that they're looking to exit very early. So for us, we're considering ourselves a very long-term project and we are focusing on impact more than just making a quick profit so that we can make a return of investment for the investor so that they can exit. And we think that is just not a way that we would like to operate. I think that is the way still, as Shamala said, you know, look at the portfolio, go for business angels. I support it. They are really supportive. The individuals who give their money, not because they have so much, but because they care about a cause. So they will really want to see the impact. They are there with you along the way. One of our um, investors also a founding partner because she wanted to be involved and not in in making decisions for us, but in supporting us and being there weekly and seeing the progress we've made and making connections when needed to and things like this. There are people who will be there with you. It's very different from going for a big firm, which might not be the same case. So, yeah. Look, Netflix just declared, I think it was the end of last year, that they finally were cash positive. It's taken that long. And sometimes then when people ask me like, Oh, but we want to exit. Like, will you be able to exit in three years? And I'm like, <laughs> three years. <laughs> yes. No. <laughs> there's there's definitely gonna be challenges. I think you m- have um, more than enough strength to overcome them. So, uh, at this point, thank you both for for the time and for this discussion. And yeah, we'll do a follow up soon. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health. If you enjoyed the show, leave a rating or a review by going to www.lovethepodcast.com slash Faces of Digital Health and you will be redirected to the platform appropriate for your device. Stay tuned.